Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. Today we're going to do the, the conversation that I know you all have just been dying for. You've been wanting us to do this conversation, or at least maybe one or two people, perhaps. Probably not. Probably not. Head coverings. Over this last year, Jeremy and I have both changed our position on head coverings. Ken now wears a bonnet to church. <laughs> not quite accurate. <laughs> We shall set the record straight after the music. <laughs> Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic. It's watered down. It has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. All right, welcome back. Well, as we mentioned, this is the head coverings episode. Jeremy, you preached through, or you are preaching through 1 Corinthians, right? You're getting towards the ends of that. Well, maybe. Uh, we are in chapter 14. We're taking a little break right now, coming back into it after the first of the year. Uh, but yes, we've been in 1 Corinthians since September of 2020. Mm-hmm. Of course, preaching through 1 Corinthians, all kinds of fun issues come up, including the issues of head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, if we rewind even just a little bit further in history, uh, I did a study paper on head coverings when I, I took a hermeneutics class for my seminary class and that was all kinds of fun and exciting reading for that research project uh, definitely was kicking myself by the end of it wishing I had picked a different topic because it's mm-hmm. there's a lot to wade through but today we are going to work through a little bit of the the findings that that both Jeremy and myself have kind of worked through Jeremy in particular having preached through this Quite recently, I guess. When did when were you in this chronologically? It was a few months ago. Yeah, I think it was August or so. Yeah. Okay. Uh huh. And we're just gonna share a little bit the uh, the conclusions that Jeremy came through. He's got a list of them. We're gonna go through those and kind of comment on on them as we go, and share what our position is now, and then how we think through this issue in relationship to the chart. Yeah. Uh, I will also say, if you're interested in hearing the preaching of it, you can go to orchardhillsbiblechurch.com, where I'm the pastor. Find the First Corinthians series. Check out Head Coverings Part 1 and Part 2. This is really based on 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. This is the only passage that we have in the New Testament that talks about the practice of head coverings. And um, to be honest, the view that I held before was, just a, pretend like this passage doesn't exist. And so to say I changed my view may be a bit disingenuous. Uh, it's really, I, I finally studied the text for the first time and came to an honest conclusion. And so here we go. Uh, I'm going to go through a list of, I don't know how many reasons I have here, I guess 13, 
13 reasons or so. And uh, is it I'm going to go quickly. Is it worth reading the text beforehand so people have that in their minds? Or is that it's, 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 it's a big paragraph, so there's yeah. kind of a lot there. Well, maybe we should. Just we, Yeah, we should. Okay. You, why don't you do that since I'm going to go through the reasons? Sure, I'll do that. I'll, I'll read it, and I'm going to read it quickly. But from the King James Version, of course. the King James. <laughs> <laughs> this will be the ESV. Uh, Paul oh, writes, interesting choice. Verse 3 is going to be quite a bit different. They made an interpretive decision. I would suggest to do American Standard. Okay, let me... I can make that adjustment. All right. They, there's an interesting interpretive decision they made in their translation of verse 3. Maybe I should just which break I don't out disagree. the legacy, the legacy standard Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and I should mention, I don't disagree with the ESV's interpretation. I just don't think it was a fair mm. translation. So, Fair enough. Okay. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. Yep. In the New American Standard 95. There you go. There we go. Okay. Paul writes... Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the head and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man." For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but women for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God." Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that a man that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God." All right. So once may the again, Lord if... bless the reading of his word. <laughs> okay. All right. You may be seated. Uh, so, so again, if you want a, to hear a full treatment on what I'm about to present, you can check out my sermons uh, where I spend more time going through each one of these points. So this is going to be quick. But here are some notes about the text and some conclusions about the text. Number one, going back to verse three, where it talks about Christ uh, is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. That Paul's use of head in that verse refers to authority and not origin. Now there's a little debate on that, but it's pretty clear, pretty widely agreed upon that this is talking about authority, not yes. origin. That's, I, I just want to make one quick comment on that. It's almost unfortunate that it even has to be stated uh, because there's just been a few resources that came out that really kind of muddied the waters on that and it's just unnecessary gordon fee argues that it's origin he's got a very uh big commentary on first corinthians like the standard commentary but wayne grudem did a long paper just on this subject and uh 
there are lots of others who have done a lot of work and it's pretty clear. It's yeah. speaking of authority. <clears throat> Secondly, Christ in verse three refers to the incarnate son of God. When it says God is the head of Christ, it's talking about the incarnate son of God. So not to get all caught up in the <laughs> eternal functional subordination conversation, but for this text and for our purposes today, that's what Christ means, not eternal immaterial son of God, but the incarnate son of God who is still eternal, but he took on flesh. Okay. Number three, <clears throat> a man's headship over a woman at least refers to Christian marriage. When it says man is the head of a woman, it at least refers to Christian marriage. Now it cannot be known for certain if Paul had all men and women in view when he says this, or if he's just talking about husbands and wives, this is that interpretive decision mm. that the ESV makes talks about the husband is the head of his wife instead of saying the man is the head of a woman. Cause in now, the I Greek, agree with, just explain the Greek behind that, that it's right. the same Greek word for man and husband. It's context is the only clue to determine whether it should be translated as generic man or specifically as a husband. Right. Yeah. And so I've got several reasons for that. I'm actually, what I'm reading to you now isn't, uh, this isn't my sermon notes. This is a booklet I'm working on, on this very subject. And it goes into even more detail than my sermons do on, uh, these issues. But I believe it is talking about a husband and wife, but it, it at least means that it could mean all men and all women. That's the view that several respectable commentators take, but it at least means that. Fourthly, Scripture testifies that God has a has designed a purpose for our appearance. One of the things that we have to avoid in this conversation about head coverings is, well, God doesn't care about how we look. God does care about mm -hmm. how we look. If you go back to the law, it was one of God's laws given to Israel that a woman shall not wear man's clothing and a man shall not put on women's clothing. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. We are not Israel. We are not under the law. I recognize that. However, we are learning something about the uh, morality of God because God is truth and God has explained to us what is right and what is wrong. And that's important that we, uh, you know, pick up on this idea that God does care about the way that we appear and the way we present ourselves. It's not totally open season, dress however you want, men, you know, wear women's clothes. No, nope, that's not the case. He cares about the way we appear. And, and I think if we think about that for a minute, it's not difficult to figure out why our appearance communicates something. Yep. So Absolutely. And there, there's a distinction between men and women that's maintained in the New Covenant community. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it says that Galatians 3.28 talks about how there is no spiritual advantage for males or females mm -hmm. in Christ. There is no male or female it's talking about spiritual advantage in that sense, but there's a distinction between the sexes that is to be maintained. And we see that in various places in the new Testament and our appearance communicates that fifthly, and this is where it starts to get okay. Now I'm starting to step on toes. Fifthly, the burden of proof regarding the instructions about head covering and hair links as found in this passage. The burden of proof falls on those who say the instructions are not for today. Mm -hmm. And I say this because a natural reading of the text results in the reader's obligation to obey the text as written. There is no time related aspect to Paul's instructions as he gives them in the text that would establish parameters for its ongoing significance for the church. Therefore, those who claim the significance has expired must prove so must give some sort of evidence that the significance has expired. 
Uh, faithful Bible interpretation distinguishes between transcendent principles and cultural customs. However, this distinction can never be assumed or uh, or pushed onto the text, projected onto the text. It must always be proven from the word itself. So that's a, that's a really key point uh, yes. that bugs some people when I say it. But R.C. Sproul said it about this passage and... I think he's absolutely right. I think this is I think this is a fundamental principle of Bible study in general. If you're going to take a text and look at what it says and try to argue that it doesn't apply in some way today or whatever, the burden of proof of course falls on the individual to make that case. Yeah. To me that is that's just a logical thing. I, I don't know how anyone could argue for the other way around. Yep. Yep. Sixthly, the vast majority of believers throughout church history have not seen the instructions about head coverings and hair lengths as difficult or controversial. (laughs) Now, this point I recognize doesn't carry the same authority as some of the other points, but it does give believers reason to pause when claiming the text is uniquely difficult or when they say that the application is dubious. Let me give you a list of, of Bible teachers throughout history who have believed that this text is clear and that its significance is continuing. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Hodge, Charles Spurgeon, Arthur W. Pink, H.A. Ironside, Martin Lloyd-Jones, S. Lewis Johnson, C.K. Barrett, Charles Caldwell Ryrie, R.C. Sproul, and Bruce Waltke, just to name a few. Mm -hmm. So again, that doesn't prove anything except that there are a lot of guys we respect on a lot of issues and these guys disagree on a lot of issues (laughs) on secondary doctrine. They're all over the place, but they all agreed on the continuing significance of this passage and application for the church in the present day. I think it's important. Yeah. Seventh. The passage speaks to both sexes and provides hair covering and hair length instructions for each. Sometimes when people approach this passage, they have just one gender in mind. Well, this is about women covering their head. It's equally about men not covering their head. Right. <laughs> or they think, oh, this is about men not having long hair. It's equally about women should have long hair. Okay. And so there, you, you have to maintain this symmetry. And if you do that, it'll rule out many erroneous views. And interestingly enough, our American culture today still observes the men's portion of this about, oh, when we pray, what do we do? We take our caps off. Mm-hmm. Well, why? Well, it's a sign of respect is, is what I was always talking about. It's just a sign of respect. Okay, well, why is this? Where did that come from? Yeah, where did that yeah. come from? Where does this practice uh-huh. originate? And the only place that we could say that it could come back to is this text right here, where yes. we are somehow in our American culture latching a hold of one half of and just dismissing the other half. Mm-hmm. Strange yeah, thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Imagine walking into church, uh, a church service on a Sunday morning and all the men are wearing ball caps. Yeah. You would feel a little weird about that. Uh, most likely. Okay. Number eight <clears throat> traditions. That's what Paul references in this passage in, um, verse two, he praises them because they hold firmly to the traditions. He says, Traditions reference handed down teachings meant to continue on as given. This word comes up in other places in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 2 Thessalonians 3. And he's praising them for it, for hanging on to these traditions. He's praising them for that. And so as we, 2,000 years later, look at this text, 
we wonder, okay, what are all the traditions and customs and practices and all of that? We, we probably don't know all of them, but God has preserved some. This is one of them in First Corinthians 11. And so we shouldn't say uh, that, oh, well, tradition is a bad word and, and it's, the traditions are meant to expire. Or, well, since we don't know other traditions, um, that means we should just ignore all of them. Well, the, n- neither one of those positions is valid. Traditions is a good word as Paul presents it here. And this has been preserved for us to recognize that it may continue. So number nine, coverings are not instructed for constant use. Nowhere in this passage does it say that women should wear head coverings 24-7. Nowhere in this passage does it say men should avoid covering 24-7. The covering is particularly for praying and prophesying. That's what this text says praying and prophesying, whether that activity is limited to the local church gathering. Well, that's a big question that has to be addressed. Uh, but it's clear that it's not 24 seven, like the Amish and Mennonite make it out to be. 10th, the instructions concerning hair coverings and hair lengths illustrate headship, not just gender differences. This is critical. Mm -hmm. Some people will look at, at this text and say, well, Paul just wanted the men to look like men and women to look like women. And yes, that's part of it, but that's because men carry authority, according to Paul. (laughs) They are to look different, appear differently because of the authority aspect that he starts off with in verse three about the man or the husband is the head of the woman or the wife. So it's not just about gender distinction and presentation. It is about authority. Yes. And that is paralleled in the another passage in First uh, First uh, Timothy chapter two, where Paul is addressing the issue of of uh, women teaching in the church. He similarly grounds that teaching in creation, as he does in First Corinthians eleven. Right. Eleventh, hair isn't the covering. Some people will say that. Uh, the, a woman's hair is her covering because it does say in verse 15 that her hair is given to her for a covering. Well, is that what Paul was talking about when he said that every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head? I don't think that's the case. Uh, those who hold to the view that the hair is the covering, um, they have to define covering earlier in the passage by her hair. So you have to be consistent throughout the whole passage. And <laughs> what, what do you come, what, what do you have to say then? Like starting in verse four, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Well, that something must refer to hair. If you're going to be consistent, which means all men must be bald if they're going to rightly pray and prophesy. Hey, I'm getting there. So, so Ken's doing well I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing there. really poorly. <laughs> we, we would both have to shave our heads. Uh, every yeah. man would have to shave his head if that's the case. In verse six, it says, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. So how this, how would this read if the covering has her hair? Well, if a woman has her hair cut off, let her also have her hair cut off. That's basically what that verse would be saying if that's how you're going to interpret that. So it actually confuses the rest of the text and it's an inconsistent position. I don't see a way that someone could hold to that view consistently. It ends up becoming nonsensical in every sense. Right. Right. And so what is the covering? Well, uh, the covering of verse 15, her hair is given to her for a covering. It's a different Greek word than used earlier in the text. And it's presented in a different section of the instruction. And uh, those distinctions in context have to be taken into account. So 
there's a lot to say on that, but for now, we're going to move on to number 12. Instructions about gender roles and head coverings and hair lengths stand or fall together in this passage because they share the same foundation. And this was critical for my understanding. What some people want to do with this passage is say, well, okay, the gender role distinctions, not just that male and female are different, but that men have authority, um, that God-given authority, that part is still relevant. But the application of hair links and hair coverings or head coverings, uh, that part has fallen off. Whereas I see all of them as being inextricably tied together. Like in the first part, verses three to five, uncovering and covering during prayer and prophesying are instructed based on God's created design for men's and women's complementary roles in life. So if a man shames or if a, if a man un, or covers his head while praying, it says that he's shaming Christ. If a woman uncovers her head while praying, she is shaming man or her husband, if that's the way you interpret it. If a woman uncovers her head during prayer and prophesying, she is one and the same as the unnatural woman whose hair is cut short or is shaved. And you, you go through all these ways that it's presented and you can't say, okay, well, this part's relevant and those parts aren't. This part stands and that part falls or whatever. It's so tied together with what you do with your head hmm. is a direct connection to those gender authorities or the gender authority that man has authority based on his God-given gender. And so to try to break those apart just doesn't work in this text. That's not how Paul argues in this text. And then 13th and finally, gender roles and head coverings and hair lengths were not cultural instructions. This is another huge point. First of all, thing you need to know is there is no monolithic presentation of head coverings or hair lengths in Paul's day. Some people will say, well, in that culture at that time, all the women always covered their heads. Some people will say that that's not true. Some people will say, well, all the prostitutes always shaved their heads. So Paul is saying that it's unnatural because that's what prostitutes did in that culture. Women cut their hair short or shaved it if they were prostitutes. That's not true. There's no monolithic presentation of that in history. Uh, some people will say that men you know, always uncovered their heads when they prayed, even to pagan gods. Not true. Absolutely not true. There is no monolithic presentation. You can find examples on both sides throughout all history, throughout all religions. You can find examples on both sides. There was no, this is what the culture absolutely did. And that's why Paul said that it just doesn't exist. In fact, Paul appeals to nature and he appeals to angels and he appears to appeals to the created order three things that are outside of every culture. God's created order and design for men and women, for husbands and wives, however you want to interpret that. Nature, referencing how things truly are and should be. It's a word that comes up in other uh, writings of Paul. Never refers to the culture. It refers to the way things should be according to God's design. And he appeals to angels. Women should cover their heads because of the angels. A lot of mystery about what that means. But here's one thing it doesn't mean, what the culture's doing. <laughs> so uh, that is a very, very critical point. I have a lot of stuff on that, a lot of references, but uh, I think I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, and then the, you want to touch on just on the end where it says the practice of covering extended beyond Corinth? 
Yeah, sure. Because I think that's important in that as well when it comes to the cultural aspect of things. The last verse of the passage says, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So if someone in Corinth wanted to be contentious about Paul's instruction concerning head covering and hair links, he says, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. The apostles instructed the churches to observe these same, these same instructions that he just gave to the Corinthians. So here, when, when we say, yeah, it's only talked about once in the New Testament, that's true. But within this passage, we have very prime evidence that other churches were instructed in the same way. He says, we, we didn't teach anything else to the other churches. This mm-hmm. is what we've been teaching all the churches. And all the churches of which Paul was aware were following his instructions on head coverings and hair links. <laughs> all the other churches are practicing it, as I've instructed you, Corinthians. That's what he's saying. And these churches extended, of course, from Israel to Asia Minor to Italy. Churches all over. Paul had gone all over. And apparently... Paul anticipated that some of the members of the church in Corinth would be uniquely stubborn in this, in this matter, as they were in other matters. If you read through the letter, there are very stubborn people there in Corinth. But he never presented the practice as a doubtful thing. He presented it as a tradition that they were to objectively, passionately hold on to. Mm. Yeah, this... Um, this this last point and the issues when you when you start going into these the historical research and trying to read oh the culture said this the culture did that it can, you can get so lost in the weeds so fast and commentaries will argue in circles about all this stuff and this evidence points to that that evidence points to this and all the evidence is contradicting itself to make an argument based on historical research that contradicts itself so much I shouldn't say contradicts itself that's probably not the right word uh, it, it doesn't present a consistent practice across cultures is is what I mean by contradicting itself. Like is it there's not you you mentioned several times, oh, the the cult prostitutes always did this, or the practice in those days was they always did that. There's so much evidence to the contrary. There are examples of that happening, but then there's also evidence of the contrary. So mm-hmm. it's not a consistent thing across all these different uh, subsets of the culture. And I think part of uh, part of the argument, too, is you, you mentioned this at some point in the midst of this about, okay, why, why would we be following cultural clues anyway? Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> it, it wasn't really Paul's practice to say, hey, whatever the culture's doing, you guys just do the same thing. Right, yeah. And it also wasn't Paul's practice to say, hey, whatever the culture's doing, just do the opposite. He always gave a reason that was grounded in God, mm-hmm. not in what unbelievers were doing one way or the other. Yes. So if you haven't guessed by now, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> uh, yeah, we yeah. both come to a conclusion that, you know what? We think this text applies today. Yeah, that's right. It still does. Now, there are various objections people might raise. We can't answer these right now. You can email us or reach us however you want to reach us, and I can send you my responses to some of these questions or to to these questions, whatever question you have. I'm sure Mm -hmm. I have a response already for it. But when when you start thinking about it, you might say, well, wait a second. In verse 13, Paul says, judge for yourselves. Why does he say that? Uh, You might wonder, is it reasonable to base a corporate worship practice off of one passage only? What about the holy kiss? What about foot washing? What about the Nazarite vow? Uh, what about 
this whole praying and prophesying thing, does that refer to the charismatic gifts of that time? And if so, would, wouldn't that make this passage be only relevant to the time of the charismatic gifts? On and on and on. Is the, the fabric covering is not defined. So how could, it, how could we even observe it rightly today? I have answers to those questions. If you have those questions, I would gladly share those with you, okay? Maybe, maybe we'll do a part two. Maybe even we'll do a part two. But to wrap up today, we want to spend a few minutes yes. talking about where this falls on the chart. Is this a primary issue, a secondary issue, or a doubtful thing? Well, Ken and I, I think we're pretty well in agreement. It's not a doubtful thing. We are out of the realm of personal convictions because Scripture is explicitly bringing it up and talking about it. And it's not brought up in a way of uh, decide for yourself, stand and you stand or fall before the Lord individually, like Paul does with meat and with other things. And um, can I just interject real quick here and say, oh, please. if you're one of our newer listeners and you're not familiar with the chart that we have, it's available on our website, dotheology.com, tab at the top, click chart. You'll find it there. The, our whole podcast is really kind of based on this chart. And we talk about various things related to this. You could even go back in our episode history and find the episode titled The Chart and the Church, where we give a one episode rundown of what the chart is and how it comes into practice and how we apply that. So just wanted to make our listeners aware of that. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that'll come up as especially a pastor or a group of elders comes to this conclusion that, okay, this passage is relevant for today. Does that mean, okay, we tell the church, this is what we're doing now. Everyone's got to do this and we treat it that strongly from the get-go. <laughs> Some churches might do that. Uh, we haven't done that at our church. You haven't done that at your church. So what we're doing is quietly leading by example, right? That's uh, just what we're seeking to do, but also reasoning with people from the scriptures and wanting to not wanting to hide it, but also not wanting to, to press it in a way that's insistent to the point of church discipline. And I make a distinction between formal insistency and actual insistency from a church perspective. A, all churches that have a doctrinal statement have formal insistency, meaning they've written stuff down on paper and say, this is what we believe and this is what we practice. However, not everything makes it to the realm of actual insistency, which is, hey, if you violate something that we've formally insisted upon, we're going to discipline you. Not everything does that. And when we get into matters of omission, where certain people are omitting a practice from their lives that church leadership believes should be practiced, it's not always cut and dry. So for instance, if there's a woman who is baptized as an infant in a Presbyterian church, she wants to join a Southern Baptist church, but doesn't feel the need to be baptized again as a believing adult, how are they going to address that? If there's a woman who is a baptized member of, of that same church, but refuses to have communion because she doesn't see the ongoing significance of observing communion. Is she going to face church discipline and possibly be removed from the church over that? If there's a man in the church who doesn't sing, even though the pastor preaches on the importance of singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and he just doesn't sing, he just stands there quietly. Are they going to discipline him because of that? <laughs> what about 20% of the church does 80% of the work? Wow. So what about all those people who aren't pulling their weight? Are they going to be disciplined because we're called to serve in the church? Uh, what about n refusing to join a church in formal membership because you don't want to commit to that local church? Will you confront that person as living in sin? What about all the Christians who don't fast and all the churches that don't even teach on fasting, even though Jesus said that his disciples would fast? Is that something that we're going to elevate 
to actual insistency. Women are called to dress modestly and discreetly. Very few churches define what that means, let alone insist upon it. So these issues can get hairy in a hurry. And different churches are going to handle each of those situations very differently. Some churches will elevate some of those matters to an issue of discipline where they're dealing with it at that level. Not every church will. Yep. That's right. That's right. And so when it comes to people who refuse head coverings for today, who say that the passage, 1 Corinthians 11, is not relevant for the church today, there are a few views they could take. And this is how we'll, we'll place these on the chart where they belong. So, Ken, I'll throw them out to you, and you tell me what you think. Oh, boy. This is where I think the vast majority of Christians are, at least in America. I'm just going to pretend like that passage doesn't exist. Is that a primary violation or is it a secondary uh, doctrine and they're allowed to have that view? As a primary violation. We don't get to just ignore passages of scripture. The text says what it says and we have to reckon with that and have to apply good faithful hermeneutics to wrestle with and find out what the application is. But we, um, under no circumstances, can we ever look at a passage of scripture and say, eh, I'm just going to ignore it. Okay. What about the view that the head covering practice was is relegated to the charismatic age because praying and prophesying refers to the practicing of those miraculous sign gifts? Joe Rigney takes this view. One of your professors from seminary takes this view. Uh, where mm-hmm. do you put that? Is that a primary violation? Uh, I'd say that's a secondary issue uh, where they've applied hermeneutics. They've tried to wrestle with the text and they have come to a conclusion and it's different than my conclusion, but it, they've arrived there through uh, what I can only presume to be faithful study on their own. What about someone who says it's cultural? Uh, this is, if, if the ignoring the text is the most popular, maybe 55% of people just ignore the text, 44% of people, <laughs> to get us up to 99, 44% probably just say, ah, it was cultural. What about that view? Again, this this is... I think that is a, a much more difficult where where you draw the line on that one. Uh, it, it's, it still feels very dismissive and it still feels very similar to in ignoring where just like, oh, I'm just going to slap the cultural label on something and say, oh, I don't have to apply it because it was cultural. Where else do we get to do that? Uh, I mean, we can make the argument about that, you know, you, you raise the issue of uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, maybe we'll have another episode on that sometime. Yeah, yeah, we should. Um, uh, or include that with our part two or something. Um, but it feels awful, awfully dismissive, and it doesn't feel like uh, the conclusion that you arrive to after uh, a careful, faithful examination. Yeah, you can't get it from the text, right? Yeah, correct. Mm-hmm. And anytime we can't get something from the text... We better be really careful. Yes. Uh, final one. What, what about the hair? Someone who says the covering is the hair. I know that it it's hard to understand the earlier parts of the passage, particularly verses four through six, if, if we understand the covering as the hair. But I just, it seems to me, it says, look, her hair is given to her for a covering. The text says that. Again. I've... So, and what's interesting about this view, sorry, real quick. People with this view believe that women should have long hair, so they'll keep up the hair length part. Mm. Men should have shorter hair, and women should have longer hair. That's generally the view they'll they'll take. And then they'll say, but the covering wasn't an additional fabric covering. It's the longer hair that women should have and men shouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, to me, that it seems to be inconsistent for sure. Like, like I don't, as we've already discussed, how to wrestle through that on a consistency level is... I just don't see how that could be the case. 
uh, and to me feels like a uh, a conclusion reached for because you don't really want to actually deal with the issues that are in the text itself is what it feels like to me having gone through some of the study and yeah, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> beyond, um, so we're, again, we're stepping on toes with that, but I just study the text. And if you can still yeah. say that, well, I challenge you to see if you can still say that after studying the text. Yes. Now, if you want an additional resource to what we just presented to you today, my upcoming booklet, I don't know when I'll be done with this, uh, my two sermons on it. You can also check out Milton Vincent. Mm -hmm. Milton Vincent has a nine-part series on this, which I think is a little too much time, but very <laughs> thorough. I tell you what, if the, there's no stone left unturned in that series. So uh, you could check that out. He's the pastor of Cornerstone Bible in Riverside, California. You can also check out some other resources on the head covering movement. There's some stuff on that website that's a little weird that we wouldn't exactly endorse, but there's a ton of good resources in there uh, that you can check out as well. Do you, do you want to take any time right now to say how you you guys are practicing this right now, or do you just want to? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, once you once you take the view, okay, this is for today. You have a lot of questions to answer. Mm -hmm. Is it when when is it? If it's not twenty four seven, then when is it? Who is it for? Is it just for my wife, or is it for my daughters as well? Um, <laughs> so what does is it, it look for, like? You know, how much yeah. of the head has to be covered? Since prophesying doesn't occur, uh, women in our church don't prophesy. It just praying. Should it be put on during praying and uh, praying and then taken off, one the whole time? Uh, do you got a couple minutes where I can explain where I am? I don't know sure. where you are in yeah. time. Go okay. ahead. Yeah. So so basically, where we are right now, and and we're still learning and growing. Okay, but where we are right now is Melissa, my wife. She covers. Uh, any time that we're gathered for any type of corporate worship. That means whether we're in someone's home, whether we're here in our church building on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, and she covers for that whole time. It's a lot like how a lot of guys will just leave their hat in their truck when they walk into a service, just because you're going to be doing a variety of things, whether it's instructing someone else in just a conversation for, for women, they may be teaching a Sunday school class. That's perhaps a form of prophesying. If you want to take that view, there's going to be lots of prayer, intermittent prayer throughout a service, or at least there should be not just regimented times. And so it's just simpler that way. And we don't see it as a way that uh, makes the, the use of the head covering mundane at all. It is just for those times of corporate worship. And so in that sense, it's still special and unique. Um, but it is worn for that whole time. I do take the view that this passage is speaking of husbands and wives specifically, not men and women generally. And so my daughters do not cover, we do not cover our, our daughters in that sense. So, um, that that's where we are. Uh, and there are other families in our church who have begun practicing it and not all the women practice it the same. Uh, there's even been, you know, experiments with what types of coverings to wear. And, uh, you know, Melissa's got some cute wider headbands that, that she wears and, uh, the, what makes up the symbol is not as important as the practice is the view that we've taken on that kind of like with communion. Um, there are lots of types of little breads that, and things that you can use for communion or one big loaf that people pick off of. To me, that's not as important as the actual practice. And so that's the same posi position we've taken on this. And yeah, you could apply that to singing and to baptism and all sorts of stuff. So, mm -hmm. so anyway, uh, that's where we are. Yeah. What about you? Very good. Uh, we're pretty similar. Um, uh, there's, 
I'm trying to think of areas of, of any significant diversions there. Uh, what about your daughter? Uh, she wore it one week, and that was one that was one thing that we were still thinking through. Okay, is this for all women or is this for oh for just for the wives? I didn't and, know that. Okay, yeah, because I, I you sent me a picture. I think that one time or yes. a polo or something, and, and she was wearing uh, it. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. and so that was that was a uh, okay. Uh, we're still working through this. Well, but just to, just in case, we'll just we'll just put it on this <laughs> type of thing. It's yeah. Um, but since then we've just kind of said, no, I, I really do think that this is more for the wives, uh, type thing. So we've kind of landed there. Uh, so my daughter doesn't wear it right during, you know, church things right now. Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, I think, uh, Liz has worn it more at like the formal worship gatherings on Sunday mornings. Um, I don't know that we've included all the other times we get together, uh, as a part of that at this point, I'm trying to think. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little it, fuzzier. Just, We're still learning and growing through it. So it's a little bit it. fuzzier for us right now. There's a lot to learn. And because there are a lot of those questions that are frankly unanswered by the text, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of freedom of expression in that way. And that's why, you know, Amish and Mennonite mm-hmm. and stuff, that's such a turnoff. It's like, it's a uniform and right. very clearly it's not supposed to be a uniform. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the text, and uh, we we want to be consistent, but we don't want to make a bunch of man made rules in order to be consistent. We right. want to maintain liberty. So the expressions of it, we believe that that's a doubtful thing. Okay, now whether or not the text is relevant for today, that is sometimes a secondary issue depending on what view you take, or a primary issue. Yeah, it's depending on what view you take. Some views we are not willing to say they're primary violations, but we're also not willing to. Um, defend them as just secondary. It's like, wow, I think you're really pushing the limit here on on what you're doing with Bible interpretation. Yeah. And then there are other views that are very respectable, and we say, okay, that's secondary. I'm not sure how you get there hermeneutically, <laughs> but I can tell you put in the work and you care about the text. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, there it is. Well, I'm sure you, our listener, have questions and you have things to say. We want to hear it. And again, we. Yeah, maybe we'll we'll do a part two and answering some objections. So so turn in turn in those objections. Turn in how what the conclusions you've come to, and we'll tell you why you're wrong. I guess. <laughs> now show at dotheology.com, Our email facebook.com slash dotheology uh, at dotheology on Twitter. All the usual ways. Comment on our YouTube video. You can reach out to us, and we will respond and react and have a good old conversation. And until next time, do theology. Also, notice that, again, uh, this is airing right after our hermeneutics series. That's, that's, this is actually the reason why we were doing the whole hermeneutics series, so we could tell you about head coverings and get you the right hermeneutics so that yeah. you would practice head coverings. One of the most difficult <laughs> passages to interpret. Amen. Yes, it so is. So we think. Yeah. <laughs> but it's is a, it really? Yeah. One of one of the most challenging passages to our preconceived notions. That's the way it should be phrased. True. Yeah, because real challenging passages are like Nephilim and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Another episode. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>